This is The Rounds Table. Thanks for tuning in to another week on The Rounds Table. I'm your host, Kieran Quinn, a fellow in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And in case you've missed a few weeks in The Rounds Table withdrawal, please don't fret, for we have the antidote for you today. We're joined by Dr. Jonathan Gravel, a resident in family medicine at the University of Toronto with a background in epidemiology, who joins us today to, to discuss a major trial that looks at the treatment of opioid withdrawal. Dr. Gravel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. No problem, thank you. So for those of you who know me, I like to get right into things. So Jonathan, why don't you introduce the article that you chose to cover this week on the rounds table? Sounds good. So I'm going to be talking about a trial comparing the effectiveness of extended release naltrexone versus buprenorphine naloxone for opioid use disorder, uh, published in The Lancet. Uh, first author was Joshua Lee earlier this year. Before we get into the details of the paper, I just wanted to mention that the study was primarily funded by the National Institute of Drug Abuse, which is an arm of the U.S. federal government. But the brand maker of buprenorphine naloxone did donate the drugs in Vidior, but they only had access to periodic safety data and did not review the results or the manuscript before publication. An important disclosure right up front. Thank you for that, Jonathan. So, um, I think I want to set a couple ground rules here before I ask you about the bottom line. Uh, I probably can't say these drug names over and over and over again. They're too long, too difficult. Do you have a short form that we can use for our listeners between the two drugs we're going to talk about today? I totally agree. So for extended release naltrexone, I think we'll just refer to it as naltrexone. And for buprenorphine alexone, I will just refer to it as buprenorphine. Perfect. I don't have to say either as of yet. Okay, Jonathan, tell me, what's the bottom line for this article? So... The bottom line, in this open-label, multi-site, randomized, and controlled comparative effectiveness trial of about 570 individuals with opioid use disorder, extended-release naltrexone had six significantly more relapse events than those treated with sublingual buprenorphine. So it would seem that buprenorphine is more effective at treating opioid use disorder than extended-release naltrexone. Okay. And tell us then, why did you choose this article? Uh, Do you have a background in this area of uh, research? And also in the context of sort of the opioid crisis that's going on, what do we know about these medications? So I definitely do a lot of addictions in my primary care clinic and have a huge interest in sort of the interaction between emergency departments and primary care, particularly when it comes to addiction. And more generally, the March uh, 2018 publication of the Opioid Use Disorder Treatment Management Guidelines um, in CMAJ now have buprenorphine as the first-line treatment. So I think people across all medical specialties are going to be interacting more and more with patients on buprenorphine. So important to talk about. Okay. And as we are in the depths of a essentially a global opioid crisis uh, with patients and uh, unfortunately substance abuse and misuse disorders, I think this is a very important trial to discuss effective treatments for opioid use disorder. And later today, there'll be a special segment with Dr. David Yerlink, who's an opioid expert, to discuss some high-level issues around opioid use and treatment of opioid misuse. So tell us, Jonathan, how did they go about answering this question and comparing these two uh, medications? So from a study line perspective, it was a 24-week open-label randomized trial comparing the effectiveness, which was defined as preventing relapse to non-prescribed opioids, and safety of treating opioid use disorder with either naltrexone or buprenorphine following an acute inpatient detoxification admission. It took place in eight different hospitals, small community-based treatment programs across the U.S., 
all of which had high volumes of opioid detoxification admissions and outpatient medical management capabilities. And so tell us about the population of individuals that they included in this trial itself. So the patients were recruited, screened to consent at any point during the detoxification admission. They were voluntary detox admission, so people were not generally aware of the study before they were admitted, and no one was on a form to be there of any kind. They were required to be at least 18 years of age, speak English, had been diagnosed with opioid use disorder, and had to have used non-prescribed opioids in the last 30 days. Exclusions, sort of typical ones, extensive medical comorbidities, suicidality, elevated liver function tests. And I think it's worth drawing attention to a few of the exclusion criteria. Patients were excluded if they were on methadone or had any chronic pain that they were being treated with opioids for, which, in my opinion, is a fairly large group of patients being excluded. So this is a less pragmatic trial, and it's a bit more of a effectiveness trial or explanatory trial in the sense that we really want to see in a select population of people who are interested in in treating their uh, opioid misuse disorder and do not have other reasons for long-term opioid use as opposed to all comers with opioid misuse. Does that sort of capture it? Totally. And, and I think it also, because we're excluding people on methadone and people taking opioids that were prescribed, there is a selection of people more likely to be using heroin or other street drugs. Okay. Tell me then, Jonathan, what was the actual intervention in this randomized trial? So essentially, they were, during that detox emission, randomized to either the buprenorphine or the naltrexone group. And naltrexone, being a long-acting injection, once they were fully detoxed off opioids, they got their first injection before leaving, and then scheduled for injections every 28 days thereafter. Whereas the buprenorphine group was given their first observed dose in moderate withdrawal in hospital, titrated up, and then dispense their doses every one, two, or four week for self-administration thereafter. So self-admittedly here, uh, I am not a pharmacoepi uh, expert or pharmacologist when it comes to these opioid treatment medications. So can you just tell us a little bit about, for the benefit of myself and our listeners, the difference between buprenorphine and naltrexone and why we're comparing these two and their effectiveness? Yeah, so buprenorphine is a partial mu agonist. It can be initiated when patients are in partial withdrawal. So they can't have just used an opioid because then you put them in precipitated withdrawal. They need to essentially be 24 to 72 hours, depending on the opioid, out from their last dose. It essentially maintains physiological dependence and blocks the effect of other opioids. Naltrexone, which in Canada is much more often used for alcohol use disorder in a daily dispensing of 50 milligrams, is a mu antagonist which is a total antagonist, an analog to naloxone, which we're all more comfortable with, it can only be initiated in patients when they're fully detoxed, which usually people like to say three to seven days with no opioids in the system. It has no opioid-like effects whatsoever, and it doesn't maintain physiological dependence. Okay, that makes a lot of sense then, and sort of uh, the reason why we're comparing these two. So tell me, Jonathan, then what were they measuring as the primary outcome to compare these, the effectiveness of these drugs? So the primary outcome was relapse and time to a relapse event. And the relapse event was defined as the use of non-study opioids any time after 20 days post-randomization. The 20 days is a bit random, but is essentially because up to 20 days, you can have positive urine from past opioid use. So they wouldn't be able to track whether the patients were actually had actually had a relapse event. So it's essentially just a clean out period where urine should be negative for everybody after 20 days. 
Now, so they're using an objective measure to determine non-prescription opioid use. But what about the people who decide, you know, not to show up to their treatment facility because maybe they've relapsed and they're, for whatever reason, decide that I'm not going back? So they are also considered to have relapsed. They continue to follow those patients because some of them do come back and they, they actually report on those patients, but they are also considered a relapse. Okay. And what about any important secondary outcomes? So they look at safety, including overdose deaths, uh, successful induction onto the initial dose of the study medication, as well as cravings, which were self-reported on a scale from zero to 100. Why is that important to measure this idea of a successful induction onto a medication? Great question. So that sort of comes back to the pharmacology and something that sort of one of the big differences between the two drugs is buprenorphine is really quite easy to be inducted on, which is why in Canada we do it, I do it in family practice um, in the office. Patients just need to be in moderate withdrawal using a cow's scale. Now, Trexone, you actually need to be totally off opioids. So you're taking someone that has maybe been using a lot of heroin for the last few weeks, put them through a short detox, and then have them off everything for about a week before you can actually have them on Naltrexone. So the idea is that your concerns you mentioned before about precipitating withdrawal are different, the risks are, so to speak, are different between the two different drugs when you start somebody on them or this idea of inducing them on the drugs. Exactly. Okay. So what did they actually find then? Let's get into the results. So from uh, the primary outcome standpoint, among all participants, so the 570 total who were randomly assigned, which is the intention to treat population, which is important and we'll talk about later, the 24-week relapse events were significantly greater for naltrexone. In numbers, 185 of the 283, or 65% of them relapsed. Then in the buprenorphine group, which was 163 of the 287, or 57%, with a hazard ratio of 1.36. Now, is this a typical rate of relapse that we see in a general population of opioid misuse? It's up there. I would say that definitely over 50% would be considered sort of an acceptable relapse rate. That being said, it's difficult because we haven't studied these drugs that much. So, yes, it, it, I would say it is reasonable related to just people with opioid use disorder on no controller medications. Now, tell me about some thoughts you had about the differences between these two groups that are found in this intention to treat population, which you said was an important caveat. Yeah, so in the intention to treat population, so what I just reported on, the difference in the two groups is almost entirely accounted for by induction failures. So. 28% of the naltrexone group dropped out of treatment before the induction was finished, whereas only 6% in the buprenorphine group. So again, more than a quarter of the patients on that started naltrexone actually relapsed before they got onto the naltrexone, which is a big deal. So we're, we're trying to get these patients on a drug, but they, they essentially could not, the seven days or de- how many days it depended on the patient, they couldn't actually start the drug before they relapsed. So what happens if you look at patients then on a, let's call it per protocol population, those who actually successfully uh, were able to be induced on either drug and looked at their relapse rates? So in that population, which is 474 patients, 24-week relapse events were similar um, across both groups. So we really, we really lose the advantage, uh, the treatment difference when we look at the per protocol population. So tell me then, Jonathan... Any interesting points you wanted to make uh, above and beyond this uh, sort of per protocol and attention to treat uh, analysis? One thing I think is important to mention before everybody starts Googling naltrexone is that it's not actually received marketing approval in Canada. 
Um, it's available for research purposes or through Health Canada's special access program, which I've actually never seen a patient on it. It's been approved in the U.S. since the 2010. All right. So it's definitely been studied and in use for close to a decade now in the United States, but we're waiting for a formal approval in Health Canada. Maybe this trial will help to, uh, to move that forward. Anything important about limitations, concerns you had that would threaten your belief in this trial overall? I think, I think the biggest thing which the authors briefly touch on in their discussion is that the detox protocols, so prior to the start of the trial, all these patients went, went through a detox for their opioid use, totally differed on the site and differed by patients. So we don't know. Some of them might have just been on clonidine. Some of them actually might have been on methadone for a three to seven days. Some of them might have been on buprenorphine before actually starting the trial, which makes a huge difference because that actual detox is crucial to the success of the treatment opioid use disorder overall. So I think we're missing a large part of the puzzle here. So what do you think when we're interpreting this trial in the context of the limitations you've mentioned, do you think that these findings are real and we should believe them and apply them to our practice? Or do you think that more research is needed to really sort this out? I think these findings are real. I, I, I do think, you know, on balance, it's a good study and then they succeeded at doing and looking at what they sought out to do. I've heard a few people talk about this study when presenting it and they like to end with sort of the equal effectiveness in the protocol analysis. I just... I just think it's important when we hear that to not forget that all the patients that relapse during the induction period are important. And, and I mean, that, that is the sort of the time when patients are most vulnerable. So it's important not to forget that, that both treatments essentially failed them totally. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the other way to look at it, however, is that the fact that naltrexone is so difficult to get people onto and there's such a high failure rate you can argue that the buprenorphine treatment is more effective because in practical terms, far less people fail their induction and actually get on the drug. Totally. I totally agree with you. And I mean, to add to that, buprenorphine can be done in the office. Now, Trexone, with that seven-day period, in this trial, they were all hospitalized. Trying to do that with um, an often vulnerable population in an outpatient setting, I would say would almost be impossible. All right, so let's try to take this home for us. Who are we applying this evidence to? What did the typical patient in this trial look like? And in thinking about how we're going to apply this evidence, is it going to change what you do? And what are the main messages you want listeners to take away? The, the authors actually commented on the, their discussion as well. Most participants in the trial were white men aged 25 to 45, mostly heroin users, intended to be single, unemployed, and Medicaid-insured. In terms of the main learning points, I think the big one is that there are safe options to treat opioid use disorder, buprenorphine being the one that we have available to us in Canada. And yes, they're only a small part of the multidisciplinary approach, including a need for extensive psychosocial supports, etc. But I think it's important to remember that we do have options. Well, that's great, Jonathan. I learned a lot about treatment of opioid use disorder today. And uh, admittedly, it's not an area of practice that I engage in all that much. So thank you for bringing that study to the table today. All right, Jonathan, we're going to move to Shaliza Halani and Emily Hughes, who have a really uh, relevant and I think interesting segment with Dr. Dave Yerling, who's going to talk about opioids. So I'll turn it over to them and then we'll come back when they're finished. Welcome back, listeners, to another special segment on the Rounds Table. I'm Emily Hughes. Shaliza Halani and I are joined today by Dr. David Yerling to bring listeners up to date with opioid use in Canada. Dr. Dave Yearlink is an internist and head of the Division of Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology at U of T. Hi, Dr. Yearlink. I'm Shaliza Halani. Let's get right into it. 
According to the Government of Canada data, there have been a growing number of apparent opioid-related emergency department visits, hospitalizations, and deaths, with 2,681 deaths in Canada in 2016 alone. What are some of the key root causes of this? Well, it's it's closer to about 4,000 in 2017 now, although the final numbers aren't back. Different people will give you different answers to that question. I think I would say it's related in no small measure to 20 years of very liberal opioid prescribing. Um, And that relates to physicians being taught that opioids were safe and effective for chronic pain and that we could use them for years at a time, often at very high doses with no concerns. Um, That, as it turns out, wasn't true. And we bought that message, I think, because we are in the business of helping people and relieving suffering. And there is a major unmet need for drug treatments in chronic pain. And to be fair, they did help some people. So, But I guess the whole point of this is that an entire generation of physicians in North America has come to see opioids as safer and more effective than the evidence suggests they are. And we really have flooded you know, Canadian homes with these drugs. And some people developed addiction as a result of therapy. Many others developed addiction through pills that had been diverted or you know that they'd sourced from a, a patient who had been prescribed them. Most of the deaths that we're talking about do involve people with addiction. And that is, you know, increasing in the last few years due to the emergence of synthetic opioids like fentanyl, uh, which are very cheap uh, and hard to interdict. Interesting. So from our reading, between January 2016 and June 2017, approximately 82% of apparent opioid-related deaths also involved one or more types of non-opioid substances. Several initiatives have arisen to address this issue as a part of harm reduction strategies, including supervised injection sites and controlled dispense, opioid and syringe vending machines, to name a few. What does the evidence tell us are some of the most effective harm reduction strategies? Just to preface my comment, you're right that most of these deaths aren't just single-agent opioids. They're opioids and benzos or alcohol or, or what have you. So harm reduction refers to policies and programs and practices that aim to reduce the harms of drug use in society for people who aren't yet willing to stop. And they're pragmatic. I mean, they accept that some degree of drug use is inevitable. And rather than trying to banish it, we should just try to minimize harm from drug use. And there are a variety of elements to harm reduction, but I think some of the big ones are opioid agonist therapy. Drugs like methadone and buprenorphine would be key. I mean, they, they, they clearly reduce the risk of uh, all-cause and overdose mortality in a, a very big way. And that's something that people with addiction should have liberal access to. It should be just as easy to get buprenorphine, for example, as it is to get your next hit of heroin or fentanyl-laced heroin. Um, supervised consumption sites. I mean, these just make sense. I mean, there's a bit of nimbyism around them, but the idea that you can go and use in a, an environment where um, you're brought back if you happen to overdose but, you know, by someone who knows what they're doing, it just, it's, you know, harm reduction 101. Needle exchange, you know, reducing HIV and hep C and whatnot, and take home naloxone, good Samaritan laws that protect people who use drugs from from prosecution for seeking help in an emergency. But I guess there's one other aspect that is, I think, quite important is it's the concept of maybe changing our laws. And so, you know, drug use is first and foremost a health problem. And it's only a criminal one because we've made it one, you know. So so just as we do for smoking or unhealthy alcohol consumption, I think if we viewed it as a health problem and recognized that the fear of arrest or a criminal record makes people hide their drug use and it contributes to stigma and it reduces their seeking of help, which can be life-saving. I think, uh, you know, the sooner we adopt that approach as a society, the sooner we'll help people stop losing their children so readily. 
As we know, there are no easy solutions. A recent opinion piece that we were reading in the Globe and Mail discussed the concept of moral hazard and the idea that naloxone may lead to increased use of opioids because it makes their use less risky given the availability of naloxone as an antidote in the case of overdose. Do you see this happening and how often? Well, I'm not really immersed in the addiction culture, uh, the front line myself, but I guess, you know, moral hazard is not really about morality. It's, it's an economic term. And the notion there is that people engage in riskier behaviors when they're insured or when the consequences are, are lessened. And so that article you referred to relates itself to a paper from two economists in the U.S. It's not yet published, but it's been released online. And it examines the, you know, the within-state consequences of changing naloxone access in five years from 2010, 2015. And the, the implication of the paper was that the, the widespread availability of naloxone might have some negative societal implications. It might encourage riskier behaviors with respect to opioid use or, you know, encourage misuse. And it seemed to be associated with more crime and more ER visits and greater expenditure of public resources and maybe less interested in treatment. Um, so many people read that paper or the messaging and took away the implication that, you know, the, the kind of the cold logic that maybe... <laughs> We're reviving too many overdoses, and maybe we should cut back on naloxone. Nobody suggests naloxone is the way out of this crisis. It's a tool. It helps people not die, and the hope is that by not dying, they are given a chance to recover. You know, to me, it's it's a lot harder to recover in a system that doesn't really help you recover it. A system that, especially in the U.S., that makes accessing opioid agonist therapy difficult or discourages other harm reduction efforts. So I, I think, let's see what that paper looks like after it's been peer-reviewed, but I think we need to interpret it with caution. Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked a bit about harm reduction. We've talked a bit about the use of naloxone. Essentially, we summarized some of the main problems with opioids. So my question is, in your view, in 2018, when is it appropriate for physicians to prescribe them? And when should other options for analgesia be used? Yeah, different people will give you very different answers to that question. I think we should be liberal with the use in palliative care and end of life. But for other kinds of pain, we should be more cautious. And so I think even with acute pain, we should start opioids a lot less readily than we historically have, you know. And we should be giving more sensible prescriptions, you know, especially after a surgery or an injury. Giving somebody 50 Percocets after dental work is just crazy. Those 45 tablets will be left in the cupboard for some 17-year-old to experiment with. We should maybe use alternates more liberally. You know, you're experimenting on the patient, trying to, you know, afford them analgesia, but also trying to minimize harms. And so, you know, especially in hospital, we should be using more liberally things like ketamine and IV lidocaine and mag sulfate and other drugs as opioid sparing agents. And maybe in clinical practice, pharmaceutical cannabinoids or, or cannabis oils, which, you know, they have got some issues, but they are just much safer on balance than most other analgesics. I think it's really important that especially in chronic pain, we escalate doses reluctantly. This is something that we've been doing like crazy for 15 years using, you know, hundreds of milligrams a day. That is usually prompted by waning effectiveness. And so it's important to understand that the high higher the dose goes, the more adverse effects the patient's going to experience. And, and it's very easy to end up in a situation after many years where you're on high doses of opioids and the harms of therapy really end up exceeding the benefits. You've, you've upended the, uh, a fundamental principle of therapeutics and the main benefit becomes the avoidance of opioid withdrawal. That's something that doesn't get talked about enough. Uh, but the final point, I guess, is that for patients on high-dose opioids, we mustn't stop their opioids suddenly or taper them too quickly. It's a, asking for trouble. You know, you precipitate withdrawal and hyperalgesia and protracted withdrawal. What those patients need is a, a real encouragement for a, a slow taper. Maybe in some people, 
substitution of buprenorphine. But I think we have to accept that some people in high doses just won't be able to taper. Well, thank you so much. Um, do you have any other final points you'd like to add? Uh, no, I guess this is a complex, multifaceted crisis, and it, it involves not just addiction, but pain, and there's a, no small nexus of those two. And I think what we need to do is uh, not just focus on addiction or just focus on pain. We need a whole series of interventions and changes in policies and, and thinking that need to be done simultaneously. Because if we start to do one thing without doing others, you know, a lot of these issues exist in tension. And so, for example, just curtailing prescribing is asking for trouble. Yes, we will create fewer new cases of iatrogenic addiction, but we will cause an awful lot of harm in the process. And so I guess the key point is that multiple things need to be done simultaneously. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for bringing us up to date and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Dr. Yearling, uh, Emily and Shaliza, thank you so much for that segment. That was really informative and I think it should hopefully add a lot to the discussion of our article in The Lancet this week. Let's move on now to the article that I chose for this week. It's looking at the effect of being affiliated with a primary care network, and we're measuring the impact that has in patients on their use of emergency department visits and hospital admissions. Now, Dr. Finley McAllister and his group published this in the Canadian Medical Association Journal in March of 2018. So, Kieran, tell me, what is the bottom line that you took from this article? Well, Jonathan, this was a retrospective cohort study of over 2.6 million individuals in the province of Alberta in Canada, and it demonstrated that if you were affiliated with a primary care network, you were generally older, you had a higher burden of comorbidities, and you lacked more caregiver supports at home, but interestingly, you were less likely to visit an emergency department. And even though you were more likely to be hospitalized when you did visit an emergency department, your overall hospital length of stays were shorter. Therefore, the conclusion from this study is that care within a primary care network may be a useful strategy to reduce the increasing burden that we see on emergency departments and healthcare systems. Interesting. Um, why did you choose this article? And can you also remind me what a primary care network is? For sure. So primary care networks are designed to facilitate access for patients to interprofessional team-based care. Often it includes a physician, one or several nurses, and other allied care health professionals like physiotherapy or occupational therapy, among others. The intention of setting up these networks is to improve the overall quality of care that patients receive and concurrently reduce the use of acute care facilities when not absolutely indicated. So these networks have been established in various forms in different healthcare systems, and they differ even within provinces in Canada. And there's often large financial incentives implemented to set up these networks. So it's really important to actually measure if they're achieving their intended effect, especially because there is costs associated with them. Now, although primary care network involvement in Alberta is voluntary, in 2017, more than 80% of primary care physicians in Alberta were actually affiliated with a primary care network. So you can see that their uptake is quite high. And this study sought to measure the effect of primary care physician networks on acute healthcare utilization in a period when the uptake of those networks was about 50% in the province. So let's get into the, the, the nitty gritty of this article. What, what was the design of the study and where did it take place? So they used administrative data in Alberta, Canada between 2008 and 2009. Uh, and they took a cohort of adult Albertans who are aged 20 years of older and they were seen by a primary care physician at least once in the study years 2008 and 2009. 
Now remember that that means that the people who are included are actually seeking care from their primary care physician, and we don't know what's happening to people who are not seeking care or do not visit at least once in those two years. Nonetheless, a very large um, set of data. What was the intervention or exposure that they looked at? So they assigned each patient a date, which was their first visit to their primary care physician during that study period. And then they looked forward in time after that to analyze all the events that occurred in the first year after that first visit. And what they did was they stratified patients into whether they were affiliated with a primary care network or they were not affiliated with a primary care network. And they did this by looking at the physician who provided most of their outpatient primary care based on their billing codes in the two years of the study period. And what, what outcomes did they look at in that time? So they were primarily interested in the proportion of patients who visited an emergency department or were admitted to hospital for non-elective acute care. And they, the most responsible diagnosis in a secondary analysis was linked to what they called an indicator condition. Now, indicator conditions are those in which primary care is felt to have potentially the greatest impact on a patient's health status. Things like asthma, COPD, heart failure, coronary disease, hypertension, and diabetes. Some people will call these ambulatory care sensitive conditions. The secondary outcomes that they measured were different measures of use of the emergency department and rehospitalization. And of course, as all good studies do, they adjusted for important patient-specific factors as well as health system factors that included the number of visits with your primary care physician, the geographic zone in which the primary care network was situated, um, and other socioeconomic factors. Okay, so what, were the, what did they find? What were the main findings? So I'll describe the population to you first a little bit here, John. 2.6 million patients saw their family doctor in the study period. So as you said, a big data set in a two-year time period. And as I said, about 50% of the physicians are affiliated with the primary care network at that time. And that corresponded to about a 1.5 million patients who were uh, seeking care in an affiliated network and 1.1 million patients who were not uh, affiliated with a primary care network. As mentioned in the bottom line, patients in primary care networks tended to be older, so by a mean difference was two years of age, 44 versus 46. They had more chronic conditions, and they had higher overall comorbidity burdens. Now here's an interesting point. They actually also saw their primary care physicians more frequently. And it makes me wonder if there's a bias here between those who see their doctor more often and the uh, overall propensity for the outcome that we see. On average, there was about one annual visit difference per year between the two groups, with uh, primary care network-affiliated patients seeing their physicians more often. The other interesting point, uh, which can potentially speak to a mechanism of the results that we'll see, is, is this just actually reflect the increased availability of physicians in primary care networks for their patients? It's quite, it's, it's quite interesting. I, I mean, it, it's impressive that 2.6 million people saw their family doctor in the study period. The population of Alberta is just over 4 million people. Yeah, so more than half of the population, and that includes only adults, are seeing their family physician. So let me take you through now what they actually found with respect to their primary outcome. So patients receiving outpatient care from physicians affiliated with primary care networks were less likely to present to an emergency department. If you looked at that from an all-cause perspective, your numbers were about a 5% difference, so 25% versus 30% in the networks versus non-network uh, affiliated patients, and that was a number needed to treat of 20, so fairly impressive. Overall, the mean rate of emergency department visits was just about half, 0.5 per year, 
and 0.72 per patient per year in the non-affiliated group. And if you looked at it from those indicator conditions I talked about, there was a smaller difference, 1.4% versus 1.7% of patients visited in the affiliated versus non-affiliated, but still a statistically significant difference between those two. And the last thing I wanted to say was that although they were more likely to be hospitalized, which is probably a reflection of their older age and higher comorbidity burden, they overall spend less time in hospital, which is an interesting finding in association as well. That is quite interesting. Do you have any idea why that would be? Well, there's lots of reasons you can speculate. Certainly one reason that would support the use of primary care networks uh, is that if your availability of your primary care physician is easier access, so to speak, then it might be easier to get you out of hospital because there's a reliable network for you to follow up in. But certainly there are other uh, reasons that that may be. And that also is supported by the fact that you might think, well, these patients had more supports at home for whatever reason. Uh, but if you remember from the bottom line, it turns out they, that patients with primary care networks uh, affiliations actually were less likely to have caregiver supports at home. So I can't tell you exactly the mechanism from this particular study, but that's the speculations that are made. Very interesting. Is there, are there any other interesting points or things that you really, really caught your eye when you were going through this article? Well, I just wanted to point out some of the concerns that I had. Now, we don't know what happens to patients who don't see their GPs. Remember, this is only people who actually visit, although it appears to be a large proportion of Albertans see their physicians at least once a year. We don't know how non-physician services actually differ between these primary care networks, private practice, family physicians. It certainly there's a thought that primary care networks have more funding and therefore are more likely to have these non-physician services, but we don't actually measure that in this study. The last thing I would say is there are so many different ways you can evaluate the quality of a healthcare intervention, in this case a primary care network. And conceptually we can look at that as a structural process, sort of what are the physicians in those uh, networks look like. You can talk about process measures, things about like what do the networks do for the patients as far as, you know, wellness checks or blood pressure checks or things like that. Or you can look at outcome measures like uh, visits to the emergency department. Of course, here we're looking at an outcome measure, but it would be interesting to see how the process of care for these individuals was different to provide some mechanistic explanation and get at the question, uh, one of the questions that you sort of asked already. These might be things like same-day appointment availability, Uh, disease-specific care metrics for diabetes or heart failure, for example, after-hour visits, um, time that it takes for patients to get in to see their family physician when they need to. So all of these things are, uh, uh, we don't have an answer from this study. So so to bring it it home here, what are the main learning points for this article? Well, I think this study shows a strong association between affiliation with a primary care network as a patient and reduced visits to the emergency department, as well as overall time spent in hospital. Now, as I mentioned, we don't know why this affiliation or association occurs, but many may argue in support of the use of primary care networks that it's due to improve access for patient, again, not captured in this study. I think most importantly, what I learned from this is that if we truly want to to say that primary care networks are good for all, we need to conduct a formal study that evaluates the process measures, the reasons for this association. And furthermore, from a policy perspective, we need to see uh, the cost effectiveness in the cost, in the context of having these primary care networks, because whether this is an effective policy change 
has lots of different ways to evaluate that, as, as I said before. That's particularly interesting um, here in Ontario, where we are, where the vast majority of the cost-effective analysis of family health teams, our equivalent, has actually been that they're not effective. Yeah, and I think there's some concerns in the literature around how those studies were conducted and in what cohorts of patients you look at. So I don't know if we have truly um, a clear answer as to their overall effectiveness, depending on even how you measure it. So we're going to move now to a very special segment that we have on the show today. We were lucky enough to be able to contact Dr. Finley McAllister, who's the primary author on this study. He's a professor of medicine at the University of Alberta. He joins us from Edmonton today. Dr. McAllister, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I just wanted to spend a couple of minutes to uh, frame your study in your perceptions about why it was important to do and some of the thoughts you've had about after the preliminary results of the findings. So, Dr. McAllister, why is this an important question to answer in the current healthcare climate in 2018? Well, I work as a, a general internist, so I work in a hospital looking after undifferentiated patients coming through the emergency room. And one of the um, frequent issues we have is at the time of discharge, um, arranging follow-up for the patients, because as you know, there's quite a rich literature on the importance of continuity uh, of physician care or of healthcare provider care, and also the importance of prompt follow-up after hospital discharge. And one of the observations that we made in Alberta, just my colleagues and I kind of anecdotally had noticed that patients that had primary care providers that worked within primary care networks or healthcare teams, it was subjectively, it seemed to be easier for us to find uh, follow-up appointments for these patients. So that was one of the incentives for this. And the second incentive was an observation from several studies we've done that we've tested the effect of other healthcare providers on management of um, chronic uh, health conditions in uh, general medical patients. So things like hypertension or heart failure or uh, post-stroke care and, and uh, lipid management. So we observed that other healthcare providers or other members of the healthcare team could achieve fairly good outcomes with with those uh, chronic conditions and within Alberta there was there was an interest within primary care health reform as in every province in Canada and one of the uh, initiatives that had been undertaken by Alberta Health Service or Alberta Health had been to institute primary care networks uh, in the mid uh, 2000s and those primary care networks were basically set up as um, a conglomeration of primary care physicians with some extra resources provided on a per capita basis for them to hire additional resources. So other healthcare providers, so be that nurses or pharmacists or dietitians uh, or physiotherapists to, to work with their roster of patients and addressing kind of chronic uh, health conditions and trying to optimize um, their management and outcomes. Yeah, that sounds very important. Uh, certainly, some of the most interesting uh, and relevant questions come directly from uh, clinical observations. And it sounds like at least part of the uh, motivation to do this study came from your experience on the general medicine wards in the hospital. But tell us, Dr. McAllister, now that you have the finding in your study that you have reduced utilization if you're affiliated with uh, a primary care network, what do you think the specific health policy implications, either for the uh, you know the Alberta government or potentially broader across Canada and even to other health uh, systems, are uh, in the findings of your report? And, and I specifically frame this in the context of some prior literature that you actually cite in your paper, specifically an Ontario study out of the Institute of Clinical Evaluative Sciences that you evaluated Ontario's similar initiative but found no effect in their findings. 
Uh, and so if you could just help sort of elaborate on that, it would be, I think, an interesting thing to, to get your thoughts on. Right. So I, th I think there's been several similar initiatives. Uh, so there was the Ontario family health care teams. There was also Intermountain Health in uh, Utah and the United States. And Seattle Group Health Cooperative all tried the same type of intervention. So basically primary care teams headed by a primary care physician with a roster of patients and with additional resources for other healthcare providers to target either particular health conditions or more broadly patients with chronic uh, health conditions within the roster. So we were a little surprised uh, by the Ontario findings and particularly because our, our findings actually closely mirrored those from Intermountain Health and the Seattle uh, Group Health Cooperative. So, I mean, it was reassuring to see that patients within primary care networks actually tended to be a little older and had more comorbidities and were seen more often by members of the healthcare team and patients being cared for by primary care physicians outside of, of primary care networks. Like the uh, Utah and Seattle studies, we found the reduction in um, healthcare utilization with patients in primary care network teams. Largely, um, there was a reduction in uh, all-cause uh, emergency room visits, but there was also a reduction in 30-day re uh, readmission rates after a hospital discharge and repeat visits to the emergency room after a hospital discharge, and also short, slightly shorter lengths of stay for patients in, uh, cared for by primary care teams. So I think, I mean, putting, I mean, four studies evaluating the same thing, um, similar systems, uh, three of them finding similar findings. I think it kind of precipitates that there needs to be obviously some further research into what is different about the primary care teams in Alberta and Utah and C Seattle versus um, the Ontario uh, model and trying to, to drill down a little deeper and, and tease out what components of a primary care team are uh, important for influencing these outcomes. And have you heard from any of your colleagues in primary care, those family physicians following your study, that they agree with your findings and fundamentally believe this is a viable care model? Or have you heard some counter-arguments to those? So when we embarked on the study, we did talk to the primary care teams and three of the co-authors on the paper are actually from the primary care field. We've been actually involved in developing and implementing the primary care networks uh, within Alberta. So we had full support from the primary care healthcare teams to evaluate uh, the PCNs. So I think the findings we, we had actually supported what they had felt on kind of a subjective gestalt basis. Um, and it has precipitated more research into looking at, into what's different about uh, the way the, the PCNs are functioning in Alberta versus uh, the family health care teams in Ontario. So the primary care uh, research colleagues are actively working on that. Fascinating. Interesting new questions raised from very well done studies. Well, Dr. McAllister, we really appreciate you coming on the show today and providing us some firsthand insight as to what goes into these types of studies and the interpretation and impact. We certainly look forward to how this will impact across care systems in Canada and potentially more globally. And thank you again for joining us on the show. Great. And thanks for the interest in the study and thanks for the invitation. Well, Jonathan, that was a great show. Thanks for joining us on the rounds table for your first time, and we hope you're going to come back in the future. But it's time for my favorite part of the show. It's the Good Stuff segment, where we're talking about what we are reading about. And tell me, Jonathan, what have you read about this week? So I read um, a very interesting article in the Canadian Family Physician Journal 
titled Understanding and Communicating Risk, which is something that we do a ton across all medicine. This was specific to primary care. And essentially what they did is they used a case of screening, which we talk about all the time with our patients, and tried to compare the different ways to explain to patients why it's the right thing to do, which I struggle with all the time. I just say it's a good thing. You should do it. You should, you should really do this. You should get your mammogram. And then if someone says, why should I do that? I say, well, because, you know, we catch things. But they essentially just break down looking at overall disease-specific mortality, five-year, 10-year survival rates, and what people usually are best at understanding without a medical background. And they conclude that, which I think is quite reasonable, that overall mortality from RCTs and not survival rates at five and 10 years, which we often talk about, which might exaggerate the estimates of benefit, um, are the best way to talk to patients. Um, And they really emphasize that decision aids mostly visual, like that thousand person diagram we often see that that is often shown when we're explaining why PSA is a bad test, that that can really help patients understand when we talk about risk of doing procedures or anything, really. Yeah, it's fascinating. Communicating risk is definitely a an art. Um, and the more I've learned about behavioral economics, the more I learned about it's also how you present that risk uh, as a gain or a function or a loss function that can influence people's in decisions uh, as to whether they wish to undergo screening or treatment as well. So a fascinating read. We'll post the, uh, the link for individuals who uh, are interested in reading more about communicating risk in primary care. For the article that I chose this week, Jonathan, it's around what makes research innovative. And so, of course, we're all striving in 2018 to be innovative in our medical research. But actually, when I thought about it, what defines being innovative? So, for example, if I use a tablet or an iPad in my research intervention, does that make my research study innovative by nature? Or is it the research question itself and the study design that's more important in defining something as innovated? So there was an editorial in the Annals of Internal Medicine this week that discussed a randomized trial of an iPad-based decision aid and patient self-ordering intervention that found a 30% improvement in colorectal screening rate uh, compared with 15% among patients who did not use the iPads. And the question was, was it the iPad or was it the use of a decision aid that made this study innovative? Or perhaps it was both. My thoughts are that I don't see the use of technology as innovative per se, but it's rather how we use the technology where the innovation comes from. Technology is not a must to be innovative. It merely facilitates the innovative design of a study. And there is where medical research can be innovative in itself. Thanks, Kieran. I I think that was a great read. I, I think there isn't a day where you don't hear someone describe something as innovative. So I think it's great to really put in perspective what that actually means in terms of medical research. Maybe it was an innovative discussion about innovation. Jonathan, it was a pleasure having you on the show today. We definitely hope you come back in the future and join us again on the rounds table. And thank you for bringing your insight and your interest. Thank you for having me. The rounds table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcias-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of The Roundstable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. 
Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us. <laughs>